Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Good day to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. As always, I'd like to welcome all of my listeners to please visit the official home of What Christians Should Know at wcsk.org. There you will find a host of free online resources, including ebooks, online Bible study, and a library of sermons. What Christians Should Know empowers believers to know what they believe and why they believe it. Once again, visit us today at wcsk.org. Now let's get started. So lesson four is on creation and sin. The doctrine of creation is important to understand because it not only sets the tone for everything else to follow, but it also gives all believers profound insight into the who, what, when, where, how, and why of our very existence. If you are starting a business, you begin with a primary aim that guides all of your business activities. If you're building a treehouse, you start with a thought in your mind and your successful material execution follows the blueprint inside your mind. Every step that you take is structured and ordered from a single origin, a concrete focal point from which everything else flows. Creation is that concrete focal point of the human experience. The doctrine of creation answers our most basic and important questions. Who made us? Why we are? How we came into being? And for what purpose? Certainly, a life that is unexamined will lead to frustration, confusion, and discontent. A life that is examined will lead to wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And a life that is examined with the original blueprint from the Creator will lead to peace, happiness, joy, and fulfillment. What Christians should know is the doctrine of creation says that God made the entire universe out of nothing. It says he made it in order to glorify himself and that he originally made everything good. So one, in the beginning. The Bible starts in Genesis 1-1 by saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing to take note of is that in the beginning is a phrase in Hebrew that denotes an indefinite period of time. And speaking of time, we know that God is eternal and is therefore timeless. This means that when our universe was created, our time also began, which is why, for example, in each of the days of creation there was a morning and an evening, both temporal events. So in the beginning, who was there? God was. He was there at the start before our universe existed because he created. The Bible begins with God, just as everything that we think, say, do, or believe ought to begin with the Lord. So again, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens, plural, and the earth, singular, refers to the entire universe, meaning our planet, celestial bodies, space, the stars, distant galaxies, and everything else that exists out there. Heavens also implies the heaven where God dwells, angels, the invisible spiritual realm, and other heavenly beings. In the beginning God created also tells us that when God did create our universe, he made it out of nothing. The Hebrew word for created is bara, B-A-R-A, which means to shape, fashion, or create something from nothing. 
This is why this word is only used with God as a subject. The Latin phrase ex nihilo is a fancy way of saying out of nothing, so that when God made the universe, nothing else existed but him. This is why in John 1.3, the Bible says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Psalm 33, 6 and 9 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. The words and for him is a powerful way to end the sentence because it directs all of creation to God. So why did God make anything? We are given insight into his motivation in Revelation 4.11 where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed, and we were created. In essence, all of creation is intended to reveal the glory of God. God made people specifically for his glory, and the Psalms tell us that the inanimate creation is telling of God's glory as well. The creation demonstrates the limitless power of God, his authority, his wisdom, and above all else that what he has done well exceeds what could ever be conceived or executed by any part of the creation. The creation reveals to us how great God is, but he did not have to do any of it because God does not need creation. Yet in spite of this, he still gave all of us the free gift to enjoy. And if anyone has ever wondered why people have an innate sense of creativity, the desire to do big things, or the yearning to make things that are beautiful, then all you have to do is consider who made you. And, both at the end of each day of creation and at the end of his six-day creative work, God saw all that he made and that it was good. Yes, sin now exists in the world, but that does not negate the goodness of creation. This realization frees us all from a false sense of asceticism that seeks to reject the material world. This is why in 1 Timothy 4 verses 4 to 5, Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. The point is that creation can be used in sinful, perverse, selfish, and destructive ways, but that does not mean the creation is inherently bad. Rather, it is how we use creation, either in a God-centered or a self-centered way. I'll speak a little bit more on that a little bit later. A key point to be derived from the above verses is that the entire universe exists because of God, was created by Him, and was therefore dependent on Him to come into being. Without Him, there would be no us. And from a logical standpoint, this has to be the case because if anything existed before God or alongside Him, this would contradict the biblical idea that God is sovereign and rules over everything. Accordingly, nothing within or from creation should ever be worshipped 
because it is subordinate to God. Further, denial that God made the universe ex nihilo or out of nothing, means that something else is also eternal, just like God. The implication there is that God is not sovereign, not independent, and not worthy to be worshipped alone. And, since God made everything, we can be confident that all things come together for God's good purposes. To deny that God made everything means that some things just happened, are subject to chance, and are not part of the divine plan. Because creation is dependent, God is distinct from it, yet this does not mean that God made everything and then went on a break. God is imminent or remains in creation. As it says in Job 12.10, In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? In the second part of this podcast series, I discussed who God is and all of his attributes. We therefore know that God is wholly good, so anything that he makes will be good. God did not begin creating out of malice or evil because that would contradict his character. He began creating out of love. So, in his infinite wisdom, God made you and I for something. To deny that reality means you accept the fact that your existence is pure happenstance and therefore devoid of meaning. Because if you weren't made for something, then all of reality is an exercise in futility that happened because of nothing and is doomed to become nothing. Therefore, love, morality, trust, kindness, motivation, hope, faith, and family mean absolutely zero because they came from nobody and will all equate to not anything upon death. To deny that God exists and has a positive intent for the world is one of the most depressing, dehumanizing, wicked, malicious, and destructive ideologies ever invented because the best things we'll ever get is already here and the apex of existence rests on the shoulders of the inherent iniquity of human beings. So after God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, the Bible says in verse 2 that the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Formless and void is a phrase that means an uninhabitable wilderness. So, from what was uninhabitable and devoid of life, God will now proceed to make what is inhabitable and vibrant. Genesis 1, 3-26 consists of the account of the six days of creation. At the start of each day, God speaks something into existence, and the Bible repeatedly says that what he saw was good. For example, in verses number 9 through 13, on day number 3, God creates dry land, the seas, plants, and vegetation, and at the end of his creative work, the text says that God saw that it was good. On the first day, God separated the light and the darkness, thereby making day and night. On the second day, God created an expanse that separated the heaven above it and the waters below it. On the fourth day, God made the sun, moon, and all the stars in the sky. On the fifth day, God made sea animals and birds. And on the sixth day, God made land animals and also formed Adam and Eve. On each day, we notice several recurring themes. 1. 
the entire process is structured and ordered so there is no randomness that generates order. So, not only is there intelligent design, but the designer is well beyond our comprehension. Each day has an assigned task, and only certain things are made in each day. Number two, there is distinction and separation. Different things are different, and God clearly distinguishes them. So, for example, monkeys and humans are not the same. Light is separated from darkness, and the heavens are separated from the waters. 3. Each day has a beginning and an end, typified by the fact that there was an evening and a morning. In other words, within each segment of creation, there was a clear start and stop time. God stopped creating a particular thing when the day was over and did not go back to create more. 4. God spoke everything into existence with the exception of humans. 5. What God made was already mature and fully developed. And when God spoke, things happened immediately. He didn't make baby stars that would grow up to be big stars. He made fully formed living creatures, birds, cattle, and creeping things. He didn't make prototypes of things that would evolve or improve into better versions. To suggest anything else means that God made what wasn't good and therefore had to get better. This ties into the last point that number six, everything that God made was good. Because God is good, he is only capable of making what is good, and thus he didn't make anything that was subpar, inferior, or questionable. Number two, the Bible versus science. If a person reads Genesis 1 and a science textbook, it would seem that the two narratives are incompatible. Genesis seems to suggest that God made the world in a week and everything just happened that fast. Evolutionary science tells us that the earth is billions of years old and things happened very, very slowly. In reality, there are actually many different ways of looking at Genesis 1, but in the end, what should not divide Christians on creation is how as long as we agree on who. The who is irrevocably God, and the Bible primarily is a theological statement that details why God made our world and us. Theologically, for example, if there are six literal days or six figurative days in Genesis 1, does either change the fact that Christ died and atoned for our sins? No. Does it change the Trinity? No. Does this change the fact that we are saved by faith alone through grace alone? No. Quite simply, that is an argument to have in the basement of the church, but never in the main sanctuary. And for those of you who are still curious and would like to find out how science confirms what the Bible had been saying all along, I advise everyone to please refer to the appendix of What Christians Should Know, Volume 1, the free ebook that is available on wcsk.org. Number three, the story of all of us. The creation of human beings was very special. The first reason why is that God gave us his intent when he made humans. In the first five days of creation, the Bible just says God said and it happened. On the sixth day, God gave us more thought. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, 
and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Image and likeness refer to something that is similar but not the same. So, all of us are a representation of God, and like God, but we are not God. Our imperfect image reflects the perfect example of God. The fancy way of referring to human beings being made in the image of God in Latin is Imago Dei. As representations, then, human beings have many attributes like God, such as morals, a conscience that gives us an inner sense of right and wrong, an invisible, intangible spirit, an intellect and the ability to reason, a complex ability to express ourselves and communicate that animals lack, love, truth, justice, holiness, and finally, that we are all relational. This relational nature of humankind, as a function of being made in God's image, brings us into a relationship with God, other humans, the rest of creation, and ourselves. Second, humans are special because no other part of creation carries the distinction of being God's image bearers. And because of this distinction, humans have dominion over the rest of creation. Dominion is translated from the Hebrew word rada, R-A-D-A, meaning to rule or subjugate. Genesis 1 verses 27 to 31 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Third, note how God made human beings in Genesis 2-7. The text says, Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground. The word form derives from the Hebrew word yasar, Y-A-S-A-R, that means to mold or shape in a more intimate sense as a potter molds clay. Figuratively, then, God had a hand in making Adam. God spoke everything else into existence, but took the time to form us, and he then breathed life into us. Genesis 2-7 then goes on to say, The Lord breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Bible does not say that God breathed the breath of life into any other part of creation. Also, God does not breathe life into us and then leave, Rather, his breath is nurturing and sustaining force in our lives that is perpetual and constant, as mentioned in Job 33.4. Woman was created in Genesis 2.18. The Bible says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. As I mentioned in a prior lesson, God, being one God in three persons, 
was already in a relationship before he made human beings. So of course it makes sense that we, made in the image of God, ought to be in a relationship as well. So Adam needed a helper because he needed help, and he being alone and not in a relationship was a bad idea. The Bible says that in the created order of time before Eve was made, the physical world, including the beasts of the field, were unsuitable to help Adam. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. The Lord fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. Note as well that God did not make another man for Adam to be with. He fashioned a woman. If then man ought not to be alone, the solution to that solitude is not another man. Genesis 2.18 is packed with so much information that many in modern society become confused with. Again, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Here are a few key points. Number one, Adam and Eve are made from the same stuff. God did not make Eve independently from Adam, because she was never meant to be separate from him. She literally was made from Adam's rib, and therefore the two of them are equals. Yet as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 8-9, man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Number two. Yet within their equality, there is deference. Adam was made first, and Adam was given the privilege of naming rights. Genesis 1.19 says that God brought every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Did God need Adam to name anything? No, but God gave Adam the free gift and privilege of doing so as a steward of God's creation. Adam was the creator of nothing, but he had been given privilege over creation only because of God. Adam was given the right to name woman, or Eve, in Genesis 2.23 as well. Notably, Adam's stewardship was meant to be enjoyed as God demonstrated, but stewardship can never be confused with ownership. Being a proper steward means taking responsibility for and tending to what ultimately is someone else's. This means, and all men please listen very carefully, that God has given us a free gift, and yes, that gift comes with privileges. But we should never ever act as if we own anything because we don't. Everything we were, am, will be, and ever will amount to is because of God, not us. This means when we look at ourselves, we say, I am a child of God. So act like it. When we look at women, we say, they are children of God, so treat them as such. When we look at creation, we say, the Lord made this for us, so treat it as such. And when we look at God, we say, thank you, Lord, for you are almighty, and I am your humble servant. Without you, I am nothing, and everything I do is to glorify the one who made me. Number three, Adam and Eve's identity is a function of mutual dependence. Eve was made because Adam needed help, and Adam needed help because he would fail by himself. By himself, man is helpless. 
Men and women separately serve different functions, and looking at the male and female forms naked is a fitting example of this. And those functions by themselves are non-productive and are incapable of producing life, as are two of the same forms. In order to generate life and to fulfill God's first command to creation, in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply, men and women absolutely need each other. Number four, deference does not equal unequal. Woman was made to be a helper. Of course, in modern society, no one wants to be labeled the help. But helping stems from the Trinitarian formulation of love, and from that love comes deference. For example, the Holy Spirit is called a helper throughout the New Testament, as it says in John 14.6, and without the Holy Spirit, we would be incapable of living Christ-centered lives. Is there anything subordinate or unworthy about the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. In fact, in John's Gospel, the word helper is translated from the Greek parakletos, that also means an intercessor, consoler, advocate, comforter, or someone called to one side. Jesus is referred to as a helper, or the primary parakletos, by implication in John 14.16, and in 1 John 2.1, we are told Jesus is the parakletos that advocates for us to the Father. Therefore, if Jesus didn't help, no one will be able to advocate for us and atone for our sins. Even further, to illustrate deference as a Trinitarian concept, all you have to do is examine the passage from Philippians 2, verses 3 to 9, where it says, Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate example of equality with deference, because even though he is fully God, he emptied himself and took the form of a human being for our sake. His obedience led to his death, and that obedience brought him exaltation. If I were to briefly sum up Genesis 1 and 2, I would say it describes our origins, our identity, and our purpose. We can only know what we are meant to do if we know who we are. That identity, in turn, is based exclusively on the one from whom we came. An identity fuels a purpose, and a purpose based on a false identity leads to failure. God made you, so why would you look anywhere else to find your life's mission statement? It naturally follows, then, that any misunderstanding about our purpose, or who we are, is rooted in an incorrect formulation of who we came from, leading to confusion, anxiety about what to do with ourselves, and a life filled with identity crises. A firm acknowledgement of the divine craftsmanship of God fulfills us all and allows us to embrace our true identity. Part 4. The Fall and Sin the history of humanity is saturated with individuals born into sin who revolt against God, thereby separating themselves from Him. In the end, everyone knows that sin is bad. 
When you commit a sin, you have a good idea that what you did was wrong, but what is sin, where did it come from, and why is it so bad? Wayne Grudem defines sin as any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. The great theologian Augustine said that pride is the root of all sin in that it directs all attention toward the self and away from God. If we were all made for God's glory, sin directs our efforts away from God, rejecting our purpose and our Creator. Sin is lawlessness, unrighteousness, that which is a violation of the laws given by God or the written laws written on our hearts. Sin is also the failure to do what is right when you know what is right. So, back to creation. We know by now that everything that God made was good, and therefore God neither created sin, nor is he to be blamed for sin, because he is perfect and just. The reason why sin is bad is very simple. The wages for sin is death. So what did happen? In Genesis 3, 1-7, we find out. The text says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like a God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Sin had now entered into creation. Up until this point in Genesis, God gave only one negative command in Genesis 2.17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The serpent in the Garden of Eden asked one of the most loaded questions in the entire Bible. Essentially, the serpent said, Did God really say? Had Eve been totally focused on God, there is only one appropriate response. Walk away, recognizing that something else is questioning God. Such sources of abominable wretchedness ought never to be paid attention to. So look at what God said in Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And in response to the serpent, this is what Eve said that God said in Genesis 3, 2 to 3. You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Basically, Eve added to God's words. This is mistake number two. The first mistake that Eve made was that she gave the serpent an audience, gave a time to speak, and then entertained what the serpent said. In fact, it's very important to note that the snake tempted Eve by simply talking to her. This, of course, has everyday implications, 
Because by the way, can you think of a woman who may have gotten into trouble by speaking to a slick talker? So the serpent made a direct assault on three of God's truthful, honest, and good promises that God had already provided. In other words, God already did something and the serpent said, that's not good enough. God's holding back on you. So what three things did the serpent attack? Number one, the truth that Adam and Eve would die if they ate of the fruit of the tree. Number two, the command to do what is lawful and not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And number three, their identity as subordinate creations and not an omnipotent creator. Another way of saying this is that the serpent appealed to the carnal nature inside of Eve by appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All these types of sins are mentioned in 1 John 4.16. This is why Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make her wise. Still another way to say this is that Eve was tempted by a biological need, saw something worthwhile that would make her better, and saw something that could make her more superior than just a mere woman, someone empowered and independent and just like God. What the snake didn't tell Eve is that all of these false goals comes with a very hefty price. Although the serpent tempted Eve, subsequently Adam ate. Had Adam led and not followed, this never would have happened. Had Eve obeyed and not succumbed, none of this would have happened. Blaming the man or blaming the woman is a pointless exercise and directs attention from the real problem. The selfishness that lurks inside all of us and the pride that rejects God. The cataclysmic effect of the fall of man is that the sin of Adam, and note the Bible never says the sin of Eve, was imputed to all of humanity and thus all of humanity was counted guilty. This is summed up succinctly in Romans 5 verses 12 to 21. Essentially, God made creation and it was good, but Adam's sin tarnished that creation and Adam, having sinned and therefore being a sinner, could not have offspring that were sinless because what is corrupted cannot make what is incorruptible. Sin is that powerful and pervasive. Adam's sin gave us a sinful nature, our whole being became corrupt, and apart from Jesus, we are incapable of doing good or pleasing God. The bottom line is that because there is no man or no person without sin, all people are guilty before God and no one is righteous. The penalty for sin is death, so whether it's sin with the big S or sin with the tiny s, the penalty remains the same. Sin not only destroys you, but separates you from God. Even thinking about sin brings sin to life, and that thought will lead to death. Sin leads to internal conflict and strife, has deleterious environmental consequences, leads to more sin, and enslaves you to it. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit, leads to immorality, thievery, greed, idolatry, and drunkenness, lying and cowardice, 
events of mass destruction, envy, slander, malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, destruction of interpersonal relationships, physical illness, hatred, confusion, desire, impatience, faithlessness, harshness, and impulsivity. Please keep in mind that sin can cause all of the above things, but that does not mean sin always causes these things. For example, Christ was sinless, but experienced some of the most horrific and barbaric things ever known. To go back to the concept of helper for a moment, please pay special attention to who God called after Eve ate the fruit. Eve is the helper, which means she is not the one who is ultimately accountable. This is why even though Adam and Eve sinned, God called on Adam only. Genesis 3.9 says, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? With privilege comes responsibility. To highlight just how quickly sin disrupts what is good, pay attention to how many times Adam uses the term I after God calls him. Genesis 3, 10-13 says, He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Before sin, in Genesis 2.23, Adam sang about how great Eve was. After the fall, he can't stop blaming her for what happened. Since sin disrupts relationships, Adam separated himself from Eve and labeled her as defective and something that a defective God gave him. Adam now has become the center of his own universe, so if he fails, it can't be his fault. God, women, circumstances, weight, race, drugs, class, upbringing, friends, habits, politics, height, eye color, and ideology all become crutches upon which he falls in order to dismiss himself of all responsibility. Any man that abuses his God-ordained position to take authority must always first consider that when God comes knocking at your door, it doesn't matter who did what. He holds you accountable first. Now, the story of our first parents could have ended here, but it didn't. In fact, sin cannot and does not overpower God, and Jesus will ultimately conquer sin. That is, while sin, and therefore death, reigned because of one man, the sins of all of humanity were paid for by the death and atoning sacrifice of Jesus. One man condemning everyone is a bad deal, but an even better deal is everyone being set free by one man, who is Jesus. Finally, it compels us all to think the choices Adam and Eve made not only were foolish but irrational. They lived in the Garden of Eden, a place of pure, pristine, and untainted beauty, where scarcity did not exist, nor did pain, heartache, or suffering. But for the illusionary chance to be like God, they both believed a lie that offered a false assurance of gain, when in actuality Adam and Eve needed nothing. Through this voluntary act, Adam and Eve turned away from God and pursued a course of self-interest, and ironically, in the end, 
they both got what they wanted, knowledge of good and evil, but neither considered the cataclysmic cost that choice would have. The serpent, representative of Satan, is fully aware that he cannot overpower God, so he does the next best thing and lures God's creation away from the Lord. Lucifer was the first to rebel against God, and he persistently tries to lure us away from God all the time. In our lives today, the way Lucifer does this isn't a fruit, but the false promise that there is always something better in many different forms. Money, power, fame, body image, acceptance, love, friendships, acknowledgement, and even church authority. A helpful way to view the entire creation narrative is to first realize that God didn't have to do any of it, nor did he need creation. But because he is relational and a loving God, he claimed his ownership over creation by giving it all away. He made the entire universe and our known world as an offering, and he made us the dominant stewards of that free gift. And because God is timeless, he already knew that when he made us, we would reject him, but he went ahead anyway. Why? Because that's how powerful God's love is. He can say yes to us even when we say no to him. And it's proper that creation was made on his terms because we are the dinner guests and he is the host. His love becomes even more apparent in how he reacted after Adam and Eve sinned. God responded to those who rejected him by providing for them. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And when you think about this logically, Adam and Eve had to be kicked out of the garden, because if not, they could have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and thereby sustain their immorality for eternity and be doomed in their fallen state. There would be no atonement, no salvation, and no release from sin. Still, even though the serpent intended to mock God and spit in his face through temptation and sin, death now served a purpose. The devil thought death would be his championship ring, but now the death of those who believed would be the ticket into heaven for eternity. And God, knowing humans would reject him beforehand, also knew they could not come back to him without his help. So in his unceasing love, God predecided to save creation by sacrificing himself for all of us. So before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God already had a plan in place to save them. He tells the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The he who shall bruise points directly toward Jesus. The serpent thought he could outdo God, but God already had a plan. Adam and Eve thought they could be like God, but God already knew what would happen. All of their mishaps and failures would now set up the greatest phenomenon in the entire history of known existence, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It now becomes clear how all things come together for the good of God's purposes. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. 
For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.